Dr. Fon, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Thank you, Rabbi. My privilege and my honor. So you're originally from Vietnam. I am. And you have a little bit of a journey coming to America, coming to the United States. And you have also a story of how seeing people in Vietnam through the Vietnam War suffering from PTSD. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what you learned and how that may have shaped the trajectory of your career? Yeah, I think when we, when we think about wars in general and, and, and when people who have their homeland being destroyed or being torn by war, that in itself is, is a trauma. Um, and because of war, it's a multi-generational trauma that goes from great-grandparents, grandparents, parents to children. And then that experience then lives on with them as they grow older and have children of themselves. And it's really always been important to teach that lesson of what we've learned so far. So I am a child of that war. But what was really special is that when I came to the States and I was in medical school, I began to interact with veterans, soldiers who uh, were in my country when I was born and when I was a little boy. And um, knowing where they've been was instrumental to me connecting with them human to human, person to person. I was no longer a doctor or a medical student with a patient, but I understood perhaps why they were in Vietnam. Uh, I tried to talk to them about what was the purpose there as I understood it as a boy and as a young man and now as a doctor. Um, and I think that resonated, that they, they, they took um, an image of a young boy from Vietnam and then was able to see how that young boy now is in the United States as a doctor trying to help them. And I think that kind of understanding of life experience, of trauma, uh, of shared lived experience, and of course of shared trauma is really fundamental uh, because the post-traumatic stress that uh, my countrymen and countrywomen experience is um, not exactly the same that a soldier might, but it's in the same context. It's the same environment. It's the same terrain uh, of sorts. So having that sort of shared experience is really fundamental in, in connecting. You know, you just made me think of people that maybe whether it was the Vietnam War or survivors from the Holocaust, um, that could also be, you know, that trauma could be passed down as well, yeah. right? Irrespective of whatever war or trauma it was. So do we see this as like a gene? Like, you know, their genetics, you know, there are different components to you know, make up someone's height or weight or, you know, any other part of themselves. Is trauma like an, a genetic almost? Like it could kind of shape their life? Well, it's not that trauma itself is genetic, but we know that experience, uh, all kinds of experience from negative to positive can actually affect your genes there's this term called epigenetics. And that's really about how your life events and experience in life can actually alter your gene. Um, and, and it's a, an amazing concept to think about because wow. we often think we're born with a set of genes, a set of DNA, and we have to live with it. But that's not true. For good and for bad, our life changes that DNA. And it's how the DNA begins to adapt or maladapt that sort of then shapes who we become as as uh, as humans, as we evolve from childhood through adulthood to the beginning of life to the end of life. So our, our genetic makeup is very malleable to the mm -hmm. experiences that we have. So they're not fixed. They're not fixed, right? Interesting. Wow. So getting to like you know a broader conversation of mental health, I must confess, I don't even know where to begin. Mm. It's such a broad field. It's there's so many intricacies and you know different where do you begin so I thought I would put it on you yeah where should I begin where where are or I should say what are the areas of mental health that the public should be most aware of yeah I sort of think of mental health as as you as you uh, noted um, insightfully um, that it's it's hard to know where to start um, and that's probably the best frame to have uh, I see mental health as anywhere and everywhere. Mental health does not discriminate regardless of how rich or poor you are. 
certainly dis not discriminate based on your skin color uh, or your sexual orientation. It doesn't discriminate based on your religious and faith background. So in that way, it's everywhere. There's often this statistic that we throw around or we use to highlight how prevalent mental illness is in our society. And it's been said that in any given moment, one out of five Americans are struggling with a mental health challenge or issue that's clinically important. Right? Is that challenge or an illness? It's usually a, a, a range. Every time mm -hmm. there's a potential challenge, it could lead to an illness. Mm -hmm. and, and for every individual, um, uh, the challenge could be overcoming or the challenge could be troubling. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see it as a problem of one out of five. I see it as a problem of five out of five. Right. Because it's not just the individual, it's um, their family, their loved ones, the people that they work with, uh, their fellow students in school, their colleague at work, um, their neighbor. So it's, it's, it's not just one individual that's affected. It's often the ecosystem or the network that's around that individual as well that's affected. So I see mental health as anywhere and everywhere and affecting five out of five, not one out of five. Mm -hmm. Just like five out of five have physical health, yeah. five out of five will have mental health. That's right. So maybe later in the episode we'll get into like some of the specific um, challenges, illnesses, and disorders. But I understand you're up to something new, yeah. uh, resiliency. Yeah. Talk to us about, a little bit about what is resiliency yeah. and some of the things that you're getting involved with. Right. So for, for us, resilience um, stands for the ability uh, to bounce back, to adapt, to learn, and even to thrive in the face of adversity and in the face of stress and trauma. That's resilience. Um, the interesting thing is that our field has concentrated for most of its history, the field of psychiatry, psychology, social work, um, has really concentrated on the problems that go on after stress, trauma, and adversity or what makes you at risk, or what makes you um, more vulnerable. What we haven't done much of a good job or spent much attention to is the opposite side of that, which is what makes someone strong. Mm -hmm. Despite going through the exact same trauma, how did someone survive, adapt, and do well, where somebody else became vulnerable and succumbed to mm -hmm. mental health uh, illness, when others, the vast majority of people, despite having an assault, having a car accident, being from a war, um, experiencing major traumas and adversities, still bounce back and do well. So I think that the field needs to begin to learn about the protective factors, the good factors, the good juices, so that we can then use that to then inform how can we help uh, those who are struggling. We know, sadly, that with life comes tribulations, trials, adversities that's not escapable part of the package part of the package it's like uh if you can joke about it being like taxes you know <laughs> it's, it's gonna come um so how do, how do you best prepare for that time of coming how do you use adversity and stress as an opportunity rather than a dead end uh an opportunity to learn and after all you don't know if you're resilient until you've experienced a stress or a trauma I find this so interesting because you're sharing this with me the day after we had a program and the room over next door, we had a person come in and discuss their journey mm. um, and with uh, infertility and what a process. I mean, like right. we could barely understand what it's like unless you, one goes through it themselves. Right. Um, and he quoted a fascinating study about couples that went through the process. Unfortunately, not all of them were able to stay together. They didn't make it to the end. Wow. But the ones who did make it to the end grew as a couple and became much stronger. Their yeah. their bond, their relationship was much stronger if they were to pull through. So it sounds like, you know, similar idea that resiliency is not just like, I made it through. Yes. It's, I'm going to thrive because of. Yeah. Let me ask you, are you seeing that even with more of the severe mental illnesses? Like, you know, there's the typical, and when I say typical, I don't mean to make light of it, but like the more common anxiety and depression but then there's you know i guess a notch above psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar or things like that does right. this idea of 
resiliency, making it through, and then being able to thrive off that, is that apply to the you know the entire arena of mental illness? Absolutely, it applies to all forms of mental illness. I, I believe that recovery and resilience are fundamental to all struggles that we might be afflicted with um, in 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 our life, including schizophrenia uh, and bipolar and what's typically called as the severe chronic mental illnesses uh, that exists out there. I think that um, one could be resilient and recover and do well uh, in spite of those il illnesses being part of the part of the uh, of, of the picture okay so I know this is new you're starting to do that research but where do you see it going like you know someone going through that you know obviously there's treatment there's help yeah. me maybe medication maybe therapy maybe both how do you like envision obviously you don't have all the answers now because you're just beginning but where do you see this going yeah. how the resilient you know what are you looking for in the research and where do you hope that it takes you yeah i feel as though uh, at the moment we have a pretty good toolbox and that helps someone with depression anxiety addiction bipolar schizophrenia but it's not uh, a complete toolbox um, it's not as good as we'd like it to be number one number two it's not accessible because you have to go find a therapist, find a psychiatrist, go to a clinic, go to a hospital. And so it's confined in these uh, boundaries that make it less accessible. Not only in do I have the right resources to find the people, where do they work, but also it's not accessible in a psychological or social way. And that sort of creates the barriers to extend the gap that someone goes out and, and seeks treatment. So I think that when you think about broadening the toolbox and adding resilience tools into that toolbox, you can increase the access. Because the ways that I think about building resilience is something that you could do at home, in schools, in the workplace. So outside the confines of a therapist or a psychiatrist clinic, things that we can actually begin to empower our friends, our families, and our loved ones, and our neighbors, and our coworkers, and our fellow students through. That's what I mean by, by, by that future. But what would that look like, you know, without having a professional next to you, you know, or someone, you know, in talk therapy? You know, yeah. what is that resiliency? What would that look like? Yeah, so, so it depends on uh, how we begin to define the factors that promote resilience. And if you ask one expert, they may say that there's a hundred. You ask another expert, they might give you a top 10. So that's what we want to do um, to begin to define what is the strongest factors of resilience and can those things be modifiable? Can they be taught? Can they be learned? Can we adapt them to bring it to the schools, to the workplace, and in the home. So I'll give you a couple of examples that have always been in the literature, but hasn't been necessarily proven that they are modifiable resilience factors. One great resilience factor is the power of social connection. Mm -hmm. That alone and withdrawn and isolated, we are weaker. And if we were able to build a stronger network of allies, of friends, of team, be it at home or at school or in the workplace, that can build resilience in the face of potential upcoming stress. So what if the playbook is about everything that you do in the home, in the school, or in the workplace about team building? What if team building was just as important skill to learn as it is vaccinations or uh, a skill to to be taught at, at, at school to, to get a job. Reading, writing. Reading, arithmetic. writing, and arithmetic. Yeah. What if social connection was a class and a skill that you need to get better? Knowing that social connection can come easily to some of the extroverts out there <laughs> and some who are more shy, it is harder, right? I mean, how do we begin to modify it so that social connection becomes part of our armor? That's just one. One can think about maybe faith and spirituality is another resilience factor that we've often relegated to um, outside of the schools, outside of the workplace. And if you're lucky, not in the home, right? Because spirituality is often taught in homes and in families. Mm -hmm. But we know that 
when someone is struggling amongst the first people outside the family they go to is a rabbi, is a priest, is a religious leader that brings to them a context of meaning, meaning, yeah. purpose, and reflection of how this problem mm-hmm. and who you are is part of a much bigger picture. Mm-hmm. That, that sense of perspective taking through faith, through spirituality is such a resilience factor that we can also cultivate. Um, and oh. so that's, that's just two examples. Just two. There, there are, there are others. You can see how two becomes really intuitive that right, maybe you get to right. four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, and they continue to build this toolbox out. If we had a hundred tools, that would be fantastic. I just want, I want us to maximize on what are the, the top ten, top twenty tools to add to this toolbox. Well, as we speak, we're right behind us is the complete set of the Schottenstein Talmud. Mm-hmm. So obviously religion will be a, something that we'll like. Well, that will definitely be in our toolbox. Yeah, um, can you give us one more, a third one? A third one um, would be um, the perhaps the, the power of hope. We talked about that. Yeah, and, and, and in our yeah. private conversations yeah. and preparing for this, uh, this, this conversation, I, I think that we often... Um, put hope into this box of psychological, something mm-hmm, amorphous, mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. hard to be tangible. Theoretical. Theoretical, yeah. something maybe to talk about but not practice. But hope is really fundamental. We know great stories of hope of someone dying of cancer. Without hope, without the fundamental skill of hope, their lifespan is shortened. Whereas with hope, through a number of mechanisms because of treatment, because of engagement, because of living the, the remaining days in a fulfilled life, the remaining days of that cancer patient is not only more happy, more joyous, but could actually extend their lifetime as well despite uh, a prognosis of cancer. So hope is so fundamental. What if it wasn't theoretical but practical? What if hope was a, a skill that you can actually develop rather than something that you sort of cast aside as something psychological or theoretical. I think you even, in our previous conversation, went as far to say that it's not just psychological, but it's also, it's biology. Yeah. How is that? So, yeah, so one of the um, conundrums or challenges or puzzles that we have in the field is when you enroll somebody into a trial and and you're taking on somebody who's depressed or anxious and you randomize them, whether they're going to get the the medication that should should work, or they're going to get a placebo, a sugar pill, to compare why the medication should work above and beyond the sugar pill. It turns out that depending on the trial, 20, 30, sometimes 40% of the people who got the sugar pill got better. And that phenomenon should not be discarded as fake, or that the person who entered that trial was not having a real illness to begin with, but there's a power to the placebo effect. And that's a lot about hope. That's a lot about self-agency. That's a lot about building a locus of control. And those are things that are in the sugar pill, but happens inside of you. So it's not the sugar pill that changed your biology. It's that your engagement in the treatment that changed your biology inside. And there's some great studies out there, very biological studies, that sort of say the placebo effect is governed by one of the most um, uh, predominant and mysterious uh, chemicals in our system, which is the opioid system. Mm -hmm. It's the same system where if you jog and you love running, endorphins are released and you feel good and, 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 uh, and it, it get, keeps you going. At the same time, sure. it's the very same substance that people fall addiction to, whether it's prescription pain medications or um, heroin. It's the mm-hmm. same underlying chemical that relates to stress relief and at the same time, happiness and joy. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, interestingly, the placebo effect is, a, is tied to the opioid system. There's this very, really critical... A part of the neurochemical system of our brain and bodies. This is fascinating. I, have no, to tell I you. hope it's fascinating, <laughs> but I think that I think that the more uh, that our field, and certainly I and many others, have tied uh, the mind and the brain together, mm-hmm. uh, 
biology to the issues. Um, it, it, it enlightens um, the the challenges to something that's much more tractable. Mm-hmm. I think that psychiatry and psychology uh, and mental health is very special, very unique, very mm-hmm. distinct. So I wouldn't compare it to liver disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is something biological like liver disease. It just manifests in a very different way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, at least for myself personally, that I find so fascinating about mental health is that it's like the only area of life that you can really never predict. Mm-hmm. If someone's very affluent, you could generally speaking tell. If someone's really tall, you know. If someone's yeah. really strong, you could kind of see how they're built. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to mental health, you'll never know no, until you no. speak to the guy. Yeah, you never you never know until you speak to the person unless they wear their emotions in their sleeves. Right. And most people who are struggling do not wear Don't. their emotions in their sleeve. If anything, uh, they feel the sense of guilt and shame. So every day, every morning, they wake up and sort of say, let me put on my armor so I'm not going to show my emotions or my struggles, you know, so readily. That's actually a great segue to my next question. Um, Why do people feel that sense of shame or guilt? Like almost as if it's their fault when it's probably mostly, you know, nine out of ten times not their fault. Why do they feel that it is their fault? I I think that it's, it's... multitude of factors um it's often been taught um and it's often been said um as we were growing up um from different sources um that when we go through stress why can't you just pull yourself up from the bootstraps toughen up toughen up yeah um uh you'll get over it this is just a phase um um and, and so that's that's part of it the second part of it is when you when you end up um, struggling, um, because mental health affects your ability to work, your ability to form relationships, your ability to do well in school. All those things, all those are markers of our own personal success. And all of a sudden now you've got something that interferes with your ability to be successful. And that does nothing but lower your self-esteem, mm-hmm. right? And then sort of the, 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 the third thing is, is oftentimes, more often than not, it doesn't get better. So you feel as though not only are you a failure in life, somehow you've continued to fail and continue to have this problem. And that constellation and the fact that we think of mental illness as something psychological, something about perhaps a weak will um, that contributes to the shame and the guilt. So therefore, you don't voice voice it as much. But kind of like what I said earlier about the five out of five, I think we are at a time, perhaps the first time in all of humankind, that my ability to talk to you about my, my emotions or my child's emotions, or my friend's emotions, or my parents' emotions, is quite normal. Right. It is much more normal than it was before. Right. We don't talk. We never talked about our feelings. Wasn't done when, when, when I was growing up. Right. It wasn't done. And, and even if I, even if we felt we we grew up in a really supportive, loving family, you still didn't talk about your emotions. You know. It wasn't uh, a thing. It wasn't a thing. Um, and, and I think now. Uh, talking about your emotions as if you, um, you, you know, you had a broken bone is mm-hmm. it's really important. You know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want your friend, child, parent to hide the fact that they had a broken bone. Right, and if you don't address it right away, collects interest. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, so, getting to getting help. Yeah. That must be really hard for someone who doesn't really have a lot of you know wherewithal and knowledge of who's good and who's not good. I mean. You know, anyone can have letters before or letters after their name. Yeah. So when someone's trying to seek help, what advice would you give to make sure that they get the right type of help? Yeah, so I sort of think um, we need to think about it from the front end and also all the way to the, the back end. Um, at, the, at the front end, um, there's always that first step of, of who do I reach out first to get to ask about how do I get help? Um, and I think that when I talk to 
Jeffrey Schottenstein, mm -hmm. um, and um, how to be partners in solving this challenge. He brought up a really fundamental truth, and um, which is that you only trust someone if they've also been through what you've been through. This notion of lived experience, this notion of I know how you're struggling because I've struggled similarly. It's like a metaphysical bond. Yeah, a bond right away. Uh -huh. and, and imagine how relieving that is when you hear that, uh -huh. right? That's why we have support groups for cancer victims, right. um, because um, cancer survivors, because that bond is is immediate, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and, and I think that the first is um, figure out how to come up with a landscape in which there are many advocates of lived experience everywhere, in schools, at home, at work. And so you have sort of a, uh, a group of soldiers of sorts. Um, and, and, and really that kind of, of building on a grassroots level is really, really important when someone reaches out to seek help. Mm -hmm. I think the, 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 the next step into getting help is do we have a set of toolboxes that meets the individual where they are, whether that's in physical locality or emotional locality or cognitive locality? Um, and, and what I mean to say that is, is if the person doesn't want to go to the clinic, what tools can we give them that is accessible on a phone, in a book, or in a conversation that doesn't have to be uh, involving a clinic? What tools do we give them that works on cogni cognitive ways of thinking, emotional ways of feeling, behavioral ways of acting? Those are the skills that may or may not require uh, a licensed therapist or a doctor mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. There are some great studies, actually, about this notion of meeting where people are at, understanding what resources they have, and in Africa, where there are no professionals for mental health, but men mental health issues exist in Africa. And they've actually done an amazing job uh, at developing and training professionals who are just lay people and getting them to visit villages and mm. work at schools and actually reduce rates of depression that's been published. It's amazing. So how many ways do we sort of work at that toolbox? Organically? Organically to, to mm. then disseminate and distribute as many tools as possible to the right place at the right time. And then and then I think the, the third step, which is a critical step, is after you've gone through all these stages, are we doing the right research to come up with the best treatments and the best cures? That's why the research is not, not only important at the very end, but totally in the beginning down. through the end. Just like the example of cancer, we're all still looking for the cure of cancer. But the field of cancer has advanced so much in the last sure. half century. Right. right, just here locally. Just here locally. It's yeah. been amazing how many cures have developed, but you don't go to the James um, and say, are you done with your cancer clinical trials research? They say, yeah. absolutely, we've only begun. Right. We've only begun. Um, if we want to have a cancer-free world, this is what we need to invest in. And so that last part is really critical. Are the treatments that we have good enough um, to, to cure and to help and to improve lives? But I think ultimately, uh, to wind back to answering your question, what I want everyone to know is that treatments are out there and that treatments work. Mm -hmm. And I think that the gap to getting into treatment is too long. Two people spend too much time suffering. Um, long waiting list. A, a, a yeah. long waiting list, whether it's because of a long waiting list or a hesitation to start uh, or where to start, how to start. All those things need to be better. We need to have better access, better navigation to care as well. So I sort of think of changing the entire ecosystem of mm -hmm. how we mm -hmm. help someone who's struggling. Okay, and just one more question on this. we we'll go to our next segment. But, you know, it should come, you know, as no shock. There are some good apples and some bad apples in every single field. Yeah. Um, and how does one know that they're getting someone who's competent, A, and B, that matches what they need to do, what yeah. they need to work on? What are some tips that you would have? Uh, I, I think that um, 
a, a couple of things. Uh, one is is that lived experience example that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you know that's had that same illness? Uh, what medications have they been on? What talk therapies have they tried that's worked? I think that sharing of that uh, fundamental truth is is really important too. From the professional? No, from from the fellow patient. From, uh-huh, uh-huh. from family to family, friend to friend, colleague to colleague. Mm-hmm. That's one. Um, the second is uh, is is that I really encourage every patient to be inquisitive and to ask about what is the evidence of this treatment working. And every great doctor, every great physician therapist should be able to provide you with that information. These are the trials that have been done. This has been done in people just like you, and this is the results that's been published in the literature. And then the next question would be, well, how, how does it work? What, what are the mechanisms by which something is work? And the person providing that treatment should be really informed and teach you about how a treatment should work as well. So I think that those are really important things to, to, to work through with, with someone who's offering you a treatment. But, but someone who's like, you know, Googling, you know, behavioral health near me, whatever, yeah. and they have all these different private practices that come up, you know, that their uh, Google's algorithm feeds yeah. you. Where do they go? I wish that there was um, some navigator screen that we could come in at that moment and say, <laughs> what do you need? This is where you go. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't. Um, and what I would suggest is to just take that first step to meet the provider for the first time and see how that first impression goes. And it could be trial and error. It could be trial and error. Fine. It could take a few, you know. And it could take a few people before you get to the right person. Right. And, and, and I, I find it really important. I actually say that to many of my patients. I might not be the right doctor for you, but because I'm on your side right now, we'll find the right path for you. And and once you don't get that message, you know that this person isn't on your side or in your corner. Interesting. Interesting. So a person doesn't necessarily have to stick with the you know the professional clinician they're allowed to try for a couple visits whatever and see if it's getting better or not it's almost like dating you know the the, the most important thing i think that most of us would say is the relationship that you built on minute one hour one week one um, with your patient uh, and developing a trusting uh, alliance with each other is really, really important. Um, and, and that's probably the cornerstone mm-hmm. of getting better, building that trust and that alliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it comes with trust, comes support. Comes support. And hope. And hope. And, um, and over time, evidence that the trust is, is paid off. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Uh, not only are my trust wor- trusting of this person, it turns out They've proved them, proven themselves to be trustworthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I saw you on another interview mm-hmm. where you said that a couple of years ago it was one out of five, and you know, over the last two years it become it became two, two out, out of five, five. Mm-hmm. right? Right. How did that happen, and how do we change course? Yeah, it's it's great. Um, well, this is um, a pandemic like no other. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of see it as um, in in a real uh, important way. Um, the virus and the pandemic, and then everything that followed because of that pandemic, uh, affected everyone everywhere. So it was a universal infection. Shared trauma. It was a shared trauma. Mm-hmm. So glad you brought that word up. It was a shared stress, shared adversity, shared trauma. And I think that that made it a fundamental uh, effect because there's a contagion then, right? Because the trauma then begins to affect not only you as the individual, but like I was saying, five out of five, it affects the people (laughs) around you. So if you were strong, but I was weak, but I became weaker, my struggles became your struggles. Mm -hmm. If I, as a family member, developed COVID, got sick, and God forbid, died, you as a family member felt that trauma. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? So that that contagion effect mm-hmm. of the the virus and and the toll that it took on us physically was there. In doing so, it took a toll on us psychologically because it fed into one of the major uh, worries that we have as humans, which is the fear of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. That's probably the number one, if not, you know, it's probably top three, if not the number one fears that we all have. We all love to predict our futures. We love to have control of what's going to happen next. The COVID, the pandemic, robbed us of that. Totally. We didn't know. We were watching just things tick up and tick and tick and tick up, and we didn't know when it was going to end. And we saw people around us dying and going into the hospital. So that's that kind of fear just breeds this sense of an uncertainty. You saw people go to the grocery stores and hoard supplies. Right. <laughs> that's that's a that's a basic stuff. Basic <laughs> response to survival. Right. Right. Because right. you don't know what the future is going to mm-hmm. bring. It's no different than war is coming. A bomb could blow you up any moment. This is what we lived in psychologically in terms of that sense of uncertainty. And, then, and, and we're, we're intolerant to it. Um, and then the third really fundamental thing um, is that the virus and the pandemic robbed us of all the buffers that we have been used to. It became more and more distant from us. We all looked forward to being in schools, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. at work, because, mm-hmm. like again, it feeds us into the social connection, the support, yeah. and the support, and our ability to uh, perform uh, and, and know that our performance at school or at work is something that's gratifying and builds our self-esteem and gets us back up the next day. It robbed us of family reunions, special events for our children who were in school. That robbed them of sports activities. Yeah. Things like the fall dance or the prom or graduating together. It robbed us all of those milestones and things that were part of our toolbox that buffered our stress throughout our lives. It it took all of that from from you. So there are these sort of physical, psychological, and lack of positive things that all together led to, I think, more people struggling with anxiety, depression, and addiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But more importantly, and I think that's something that, to finally get back to your question, are we out of it, has led to another phenomenon that's in the literature that that where many of us, perhaps 50% of us, half of us are languishing. So we might mm-hmm. not be in that bottom two out of five, but there's two or three of us in that out of five who are not just fully at our optimal potential. We're not living up to where we used to be. We're, 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 we're going through the day kind of with our tank half full, this notion right, of languishing, right, right. you know? And, and I think um, the only way to get out of it, to get back to your question, is to pinpoint what are the things that, that the pandemic robbed of us of and how do we get as closely back to that as possible. As possible, yeah. You know, last uh, last week we interviewed um, Tzvi Glock, founder of Amudim, which is an organization that you know helps people with trauma, addiction. Um, and he somewhat half-jokingly said the best thing that came out of COVID is that everyone's cool talking about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's fine talking about mental health. Until then, it was like, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe not. Please, yeah. confidentially, I'll share with you this. And, right. yeah. It's certainly not weird. It's uh, definitely not it's weird. It's not weird, right? So Harry Miller, you know, um, the... Um, Ohio State University uh, offensive lineman who recently yeah. did medical retirement. Uh, one of his big things is is how do you not make it weird? Um, and so there's there's going to be this this great charge from him to sort of not making this conversation so weird. But I think we've made major inroads. Major, that. major, and it actually reminds me of you know locally and I think nationally as well. We've seen big names come forward. He mentioned Jeffrey Shonstein earlier, good friend of ours, then the the in the Colos and. Uh, um, Ohio State, you know, head coach Ryan Day. It's a nice picture of us with Ryan Day right there. Yeah. We did an event with him last year, and he talked a little bit about his journey. Um, having names like that, the Schottenstein, Jeffrey Schottenstein, and Ryan Day come forward, has that benefited, and if so, how? It's, it's be- benefited tremendously. Well, the, these are um, I- individuals who are in the limelight. 
for better or for the for worse, we know who they are. We see them mm-hmm. um, and how they not only project themselves, but the messages that they speak of resonate far beyond what I can do mm-hmm. or what you can do mm-hmm. of someone who's not as much in the public eye. I think that brings its own stressors and it brings its sure. own challenges, sure. but it also brings opportunities to really be advocates and champions of this cause. Um, and, and one can think about mental health as a challenge, or one can think about resilience. To me, it's the same dimension in how you speak about it. Mm-hmm. What's important is really to, to be to speak about it. Uh, when 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 you speak about the many many people who are figures of authority that people look up to, that people respect, um, when they speak and their word carry, uh, it can motivate someone in an amazing way. Their words and their messages have this rippling effect that is quite powerful because if someone of that stature can speak like that, maybe little old me can speak like that. Mm-hmm. Or if someone of that stature says, uh, in, in the case of, of, of Coach Day, who's understood, who's always understood that in a student athlete's performance, it's not just on the field and it's not just physical. It's cognitive, it's mm-hmm. emotional, it's mm-hmm. spiritual, it's everything that that you bring onto that field and what you leave the field off field is also really important too. So that there's this, this circle of, of care uh, that is mindful of that. And so if, if you believe that and you literally say that, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to not be okay. Right. Imagine how that is not only heard by his team, but also student athletes who are in high school, in middle school, who look up to our football program, our university as kind of the destination place to, right. to play at and be at, you know, right. that, that could have an, a, an amazing effect. And so if you have these luminaries um, and champions speaking everywhere, in every sphere, in the sports sphere, in the music sphere, Entertainment, in, yeah. the, in, in the business sphere, yeah. it's then outside of the medical sphere, because mm-hmm. then it's, you know, it, it's at the medical sphere right. here. Yeah, you get paid to say this. Yeah. They don't. And, and sometimes it's a psychiatrist. I don't know them even in the medical field. You know what I mean? But in, in that sphere. But now, you're right. If more and more people in different spheres talk about it, the ripple effect becomes universal almost, mm-hmm. right? Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, I didn't even look at my notes once just because every topic yeah. we discussed led to another. I have to see if, we, if there's anything we even left out. We may have covered everything, but... Uh, we mentioned the power of hope. Um, okay, someone going through severe mental illness. So, yes, we talked about the power of hope. I don't know if they're ready to hear that when they're right. going through something. No. What should they be told? Um, yeah, I, I think it goes back to um, get help. Um, try, try it. Um, trust in it. Because there are options out there, there are treatments out there for all kinds of struggles. Um, depression, anxiety, addiction, schizophrenia, everything uh, under the sun of what we call a mental illness, there's a treatment for. And there are good treatments out there. So the first step is really just to try to get help. And that treatment doesn't have to be medications. It doesn't mean that you're going to be put in a, uh, uh, a straight jacket and, and go to the hospital. Right. It, it could be uh, as simple as uh, a relaxation exercise. It could be as simple as uh, a prescription to take more walks and spend <laughs> more time with yourself. You know, and I think it, people don't appreciate that right away. But yeah. in the right hands with the right people, they, they begin to introduce the toolbox in a way that's relatable and intuitive. Uh, and that first connection is really, really critical. And what about the family members? I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard of someone's going through something and the, and the family's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Like, what, you know, seriously, come on, stop this already. Yeah. What, I, what's the message to them? I, I think that the message to them is to understand um, 
their loved one in a non-judgmental way, uh, in a non-critical way. Uh, just like you wouldn't criticize somebody for having cancer or heart disease. Uh, even if that person uh, smoked all their lives, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, ate a bad diet, uh -huh. uh, and didn't exercise. Right. Now's not the time to... But yeah. you, you don't do that. That's not part of the, the yeah. natural state of things. I, I don't talk to my family members and say, it's because you smoked all your life. No wonder why you have cancer. Right? right? That, that's That's not... Uh, that's not the approach that we take. Right. And we should not take that approach with someone struggling with mental health challenges. I think the other thing beyond being non-judgmental is, 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 um, is to be supportive, to say it's okay to not feel okay. Let's try to get you some help. You know, mm -hmm. um, Let's not ignore this before it snowballs. And I think beyond that, I guess the third thing is just to be patient with the process. I think so many families um, are looking for a solution mm -hmm. as quickly as possible because mm -hmm. they see their loved one struggling mm -hmm. and there's nothing more than seeing Painful. your child yeah. in pain or your child making bad decisions or your parents in pain um, or losing their way of thinking and changing their personality. There's nothing more struggling and disruptive like that. And because of that, we are often lulled into this sense that we want a fix right away. We, we want the process to, to go quicker. Um, but I always try to remind people, it takes a long time to get better. And it's in part because you didn't even come depressed, anxious, overnight. or addicted overnight. Right. It was slow and steady, slow and steady over time <laughs> right. that this person fell vulnerable, and it's going to take slow and steady over time to get to get back out, to get back right. When you talked about the power of hope, um, that kind of makes me wonder about childhood. That's a loaded word, childhood, right? Um, can you just maybe in a you know in a snapshot tell us? what the effects that parents could have on their children's mental health without even addressing their mental health, just the, you know, the tone of, tone of the atmosphere. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, you brought that up in light of hope. Um, and, and to me, another way to describe hope um, is to think about perspectives. Um, and there are two ways to think about perspectives that I try to really convey early on. Um, there's perspective in terms of different directions one can take, different directions one can think. The other thing about perspective is this perspective of time. The moment right now seems so important, or what just happened today seems so important. But if you look at the perspective of time, you realize that what's happening today is going to be minuscule mm -hmm. 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years mm -hmm. later in mm -hmm. time. Because this minute will have many, many minutes ahead of it. And so that kind of perspective taking can be talked about early on. So when a child is struggling, don't close the window or narrow the path, try to open their eyes to things can change, things can get better. You, you can be hopeful, not because I tell you to be hopeful, but because there are different ways of thinking about this one problem or this mm -hmm. one challenge. Let's broaden your perspective. Let's think about the perspective of time. You know, I think that, yeah. that parents can teach that really, really early on, um, especially from young kids to throughout adolescence. Um, it, it's about um, perspective taking um, and framing and reframing and framing and reframing. That's really fundamental things that can be taught at the home. And what about the quality of the relationship of the parents? How does that affect a child's mental health? Yeah, I, I think that... Um, if we are lucky, 
aside from all the biases that come with such statement, I'll say that if we are lucky, we'll have two loving parents uh, who love us, love each other, regardless of whether they um, are married or aren't married. I, I know of, of kids who've been through divorce, but the divorce was okay because the kid was able to understand that the parents were actually worse together than apart. And they weren't a pawn in the process. Exactly. And yeah. that even after the divorce, the parents respected one another. So so those are the kinds of things that you could mirror in a, in yourselves that is a major life lesson for a child, such that it's, it's not about end-all, be-all if there's a breakup in a relationship, that your life continues, that you can continue to grow as a human being and a person. Th- those are great lessons that you could have as a parent, you know. Um, uh, and, of course, if you have a tight-knit family who's together, who's uh, supportive and stays together, that's great, too. Uh, I'm just saying that there are many ways to think about... There's the ideal, parents, right? there's the ideal situation we should all strive for, mm-hmm. but... In the event that doesn't happen, it's not you know it's not all loose. Yeah, exactly. Um, we um, talked we, we talked a lot about hope. We talked a lot about resiliency. And as we come to uh, a close on the episode, is there a short a story you could share with us about someone in a you know a really bad state? The world was coming to an end, and how they pulled through, and how like you say, resiliency made them thrive. Yeah. Um. I have the uh, the privilege, and I'll get back to another point as well, uh, of of caring for people um, in the transition age, uh, which I think is is a remarkably important and challenging time. Which is when a, a man and a woman becomes a young man and a young woman, leaves their teenage years mm-hmm. and leaves their their home and embarks out to college or to trade school. And the story that I have is of, of, a, of a young man in school, but struggling. Um, he had done well, but he has had its ups and downs. Um, and when he met me, uh, it was in the context of being hospitalized psychiatrically. Mm-hmm. So if you're a young man and you sort of think that my life is ahead of me, I'm in college, things should be great. What is this that I'm being diagnosed with this really scary illness that you're putting me on medications that are changing me mm-hmm. chemically, but I can feel the medications that I'm taking? And what is it that I'm in a psychiatric ward where I'm locked and I can't leave? And you've taken me away from my college life. And myself. And myself. Yeah. And my identity. Mm-hmm. And my family and everything about me, and, and that eroded him to no ends, that brought him to tears, mm-hmm. to confusion, to isolation, to darkness, to the abyss, right? But because um, I had met young men and young women like him, I could paint a picture of what time would be like if we continued on this path in treatment, um, under care, doing the right things, working at it individually and together and with the family, he could be towards back towards a path of success. And that young man then went back to school and finished school, entered graduate school, not locally but far away, you know, in another town, in another state. Um, and, and I think that when you are in the abyss, and in the hole, it's really hard to look out because mm-hmm. you've sunk so low. All the hope and all the help and all the people in the world just seem so, so far away from you. And um, and I think it's those kinds of stories that are, are really, really fundamental. Um, and so back to this kind of this, the, the, the college question, what was really important to Jeffrey Schottenstein, to Jane Jean Schottenstein, mm-hmm. was that... Uh, they asked me, well, what are, where, where can we make the most important impact? impact? Yeah. You know, people who, who, um, 
who invest in something. They, they want early gains and they want impact. And, and that's really important. I mean, that, that's, that's very natural. And I said, just because I have these stories of these young people, well, you can make the most impact in this age between 17 to 25. Because I think what you, you, your brain is finally coming together. But what you do between the ages of 17 to 25 sets you up for the next five, seven, eight decades of your life. And, and I think I said there are, there, there are more people struggling at this age and we can make a fundamental impact than at any other age. Of course, I'm biased because that's my area of work and that's where I really like to, to work. Mm-hmm. If I was a child psychiatrist, I would sim- say similar things. The earlier we start, probably the better. And they could both be true. And they could both be yeah. true. But I do find this transition from leaving high school and leaving the nest to having to define yourself in relationships, in school, in work, is so... You're, you're tested... Uh, you know, in so many different ways. You know, when, when, when you look at the history of psychiatry and all the psychoanalysts and all the theorists that went by, everyone talked about stages. So staging and stages are so important in life that mm-hmm. we don't really pay attention to. I, t- I, I do believe in this stage of, of 17 to 25, 18 to 30 even, is it, really, really important. It could go as late as 30? I, I think as, you can go as late as 30. Uh-huh. So you know. those are still formidable, formidable years. Interesting. Remember, because uh, the milestones that that we've grown up in the last century are all being pushed. Uh, people are graduating, uh, taking longer to graduate from college. It's true. Right. People are getting married later. Mm-hmm. People are having their first child later. Mm-hmm. And those are just sort of quote unquote typical milestones. It's it's imagine all the other milestones. Like, right. how do you find out who you are? to the core. Identity. What yeah. is your identity? Yeah. You know, maybe that's all pushed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feed off each other. So when one gets pushed, you exactly. know. Interesting. Yeah, and, and a, a remarkable fundamental question, what did COVID do to that stage yeah. and that aging? Ooh, well. Did it set us back? Yeah. Did it make us more mature or more immature? Yeah, I did a lot of things. Yeah, I did a lot <laughs> of things, right? But that's, that's, that's I, I think also we learned in COVID that um, physical health can't go without mental health, yeah. you know. And I know so many people th- through quarantine just went crazy. Yeah. And you don't want to put someone else at risk either. Yeah. So finding how to make that balance was, uh, yeah. was something that everyone learned. But, uh, wow, this was a great conversation. I really, uh, very much appreciate you coming out here. My um, honor and my privilege. I have one question that I didn't put on here on purpose. Yeah. And that is, when do we get to meet again? Oh, anytime. I'm, I'm always, just like you are, Rabbi, always uh, here to spread the good message. I, I think that that's part of what I do, is, is spreading the message. Um, and um, even though earlier I said that I'm this um, lowly person relative to a, a big-time football coach or a big-time businessman, I... Um, uh, I I think each and every one of us should be empowered to spread the message. Mm -hmm. But as a chair of a a great department of psychiatry and behavioral health at The Ohio State University, I think I'm I'm also empowered and responsible to to spread that message. So I'm happy to come back at any time, talk about something specific or something broader, anywhere in between. Amazing. I I, I thank you for being part of this conversation and this platform and spreading this message. You, You do... You do God's work in, in every way. Well, the, the name of our podcast is Kolot, which is the Hebrew word for voices, because mm-hmm. we need to hear many voices in life yeah. from many areas of life, different people, different professions, and we need to take in and learn from everyone. Yeah. So lots to learn from, from you. Those perspectives, right? <laughs> Dr. Fon, thank you so much. Thank you very much. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. 
ever since 1995. Boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.